What's up? My name is Josiah Haken, and I've been working with homeless folks for over a decade. I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons we have not been able to solve the homelessness crisis in our country is because we fundamentally do not understand why it happens or what or can be done about it. In this podcast, I'm going to interview friends of mine who have experienced homelessness firsthand, experts who have spent years of their lives trying to provide services and resources to their unhoused neighbors, and advocates and theologians who will help us think differently about the issue altogether. You are not going to agree with everyone I interview on this podcast. You may not even agree with me, and that is okay. Let's throw out our assumptions and consider the possibility that maybe there is more to this story than we previously thought. Welcome to the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. Alrighty, I am here with my friend and someone who I admire uh, in the space uh, of homelessness. Um, I can just give a little background on how I met uh, and heard of Josh Dean. Um, Josh is the executive director of Human.NYC. He's a fierce advocate for uh, our homeless neighbors in New York City. And um, I basically saw his name pop up uh, on a bunch of uh, news articles. Uh, and, and I talked to people who knew him and knew what the work he was doing. And um, and I just was instantly a fan and I you know wanted to connect as much as possible. And so Josh and I grabbed coffee a couple years ago and sort of ever since then we're fast friends. And uh, it's just such a pleasure, uh, honestly, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me a little bit and tell us a little bit about the work that you do and, and kind of how our friends uh, in the street can hopefully um, experience a, a little uh, a little love and a little joy because of the work that you're doing and the work that we're doing. So thank you, Josh Dean, for joining me, man. Yeah, of course. So happy to be here. And the, the love is very much reciprocal. I admire what you all do at City Relief so much. And so many people that we know out on the streets have benefited from, from the work that you do and speak so highly of it. So um, yeah, of course. So happy to be here. So, so Josh, tell me, like, this is not like I tell people all the time, like I didn't grow up like dreaming about being an outreach worker. And, and like, I didn't like, like when I was a kid, I wasn't like, you know what I'm going to do when I, when I grow up, I'm going to work to help homeless folks. Like that was no, not on the radar. I, I don't think that there's probably a lot of people out there that dreamed of being an, maybe a homeless advocate. Um, so for you, like, how did, how did it begin? Like, where, where did you grow up? Um, and, and what was your first introduction to the reality of homelessness? Yeah, so I similar story in, in many ways. I grew up in suburban New Jersey, just outside Princeton. I don't think I ever met anyone who was homeless when I when I lived there. Um, and then I moved to New York City when I was 18 years old to go to NYU. So you know that was a huge shock to the system in in many ways. Um, one of them being that on my way to and from class, I was often you know encountering people who who were homeless. Um, I did my best to just, you know, introduce myself and, and, and talk to them. Um, there were a few people, especially as I, I grew grew older and, and got to know the city better, there were a few people that lived near near where I lived. And um, when I started cooking, sometimes I would bring bring food outside for them and um, hopefully it wasn't terrible. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> the, you know, I... I just you know, when I could, did did little little things that that I could, um, you know, t- to people that I was seeing, especially those who I would see regularly. Um, and then I got involved with this organization, which was actually started by a friend of mine in college. He had this idea okay. um, for an app, as all 
20 somethings do when they're in college. Um, and the app basically, when you saw someone who was homeless on the streets, you could ask them if they needed anything. And if they were like, yeah, I'm hungry, you could drop a pin at their location and all of the nearby users would be alerted. Like, hey, this person on 14th and 3rd, you know, is hungry. And then if somebody's walking by who has the app and they have extra food, they can go and bring it to the person. There were a couple really, really nice moments where like one person requested a Snapple and then somebody like 20 minutes later showed up with a peach Snapple and he's like, whoa, like what is this? Um, but for the most part, people were asking for the same things over and over again. Um, so much as the app was a cool idea, I was the person who came in and said, hey, we don't really need this. Um the same things keep popping up over and over again. And we switched from the app to, uh, we got a storage unit in Greenwich Village. Uh, we rounded up some NYU volunteers. And a couple nights a week, we went out with backpacks full of socks, tampons and pads, t-shirts, uh, mylar blankets, and just you know started to, to give those out and, and talk to people. Um, and slowly but surely, those conversations kind of transitioned from, you know, what do you need in in the short term to what do you need in the long term? And that's when we started to hear about people's experiences in the shelter system. That's why when we, when we began starting to hear about people's experience trying to find housing um, and, you know, we were hearing the same stories over and over again, people hitting the same walls, the same barriers and um, slowly but surely this, this, original idea for an app to deliver things to people turned into a, a grassroots advocacy organization. Um, but it's really always been a matter of just listening to people and, and you know, hearing what they have to say and um, trying to work at their direction the best we can. It's, it's fascinating to me because it's, it is, there are so many different, um, like there's so many different people, you know, who, who are walking around, going to class, you know, passing people in the street, um, I just think it's, I just think it's incredible that you were able to sort of transition that, um, you know, coming from the suburban context into the city for school, but then immediately translating that into action. Like you just started engaging with people. I mean, just out of curiosity, like, have you ever thought like, what is it about like how you were raised or what motivates you? Like, how, like just, just being in, I know, I know it seems so painfully obvious, but there are so many people who. Um, are really good people, really well-intentioned people, but they never are able to sort of make that shift from sort of that, oh, I'm a kind person who feels bad for that person I see on the sidewalk to actually packing supplies, mobilizing, you know, fellow students, getting a storage unit. Like, just out of curiosity, like, is it, have you ever thought about, like, what is it that kind of motivated you to kind of move into that space of, of action? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. And when I think back to the students that came to, to volunteer, it was kind of a combination of these two extremes. On the one hand, it was people who grew up really privileged and had never seen something like this before. And then they get to New York and they're like, whoa, like what is what is this? Like, How are we as a society letting this happen? And kind of this just shock. And then it's people that you know grew up... Um, Maybe their you know, parents at one point were struggling to make ends meet or um, were on the verge of homelessness or experienced homelessness themselves. And coming from this place of deep empathy for, for the community that we were trying to go out there and, and meet and, and connect with. Um, so I think from, from my case personally, it was kind of a, a shock at first. Um, and then I think also, I mean, the, the way I was just brought up with my, with my parents, they were both really, really kind and, and generous people. And um, 
you know, really took care of um, people in, in my family. Um, so it was, I think, ingrained in me to be, you know, looking out for those who, uh, who might need, you know, something extra. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I, I worded that in the best way. But um, yeah, I think that that's kind of, that was kind of it. There was no, no like crazy moment um, in particular. I mean, there were there were quite a few people around my apartment who who I got to know, and possibly the fact that they were so friendly and warm, um, you know, helped me uh, to to extend, uh, you know, push my my comfort zone a bit. Um, I imagine those initial few people helped with that. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I would say. No, that makes perfect sense. And, uh, you know, and so human.nyc was sort of born, right? I mean, so tell me a little bit about like, I mean, I, I remember my first introduction to human, human.nyc. How, how did it sort of break through into this sort of like you guys are now, you know, any, any Times article, any, you know, New York space that considers, you know, that tries to talk about homelessness, like you guys are, are really one of the top advocacy, you know, entities in New York city. Um, and so, and that's, and that doesn't just magically happen. Like how, how did, how did you kind of build some momentum to actually start to give, give voice to the needs of our homeless neighbors in New York city? Yeah. I think looking back, the thing that I'm really grateful we did was we didn't rush anything. We didn't come into this space saying, Oh, you know, we, we know what needs to happen. Um, we took, a really long time, uh, multiple years of just going out and doing outreach and listening. And we, you know, we started in 2016. I don't think we appeared in an article, met with a council member, did anything until, you know, late 2018, early 2019. I'd need to look back. But um, we really, really did our homework. Um, we, we got to know people. We were literally going out with like a map that showed not like a, like a geographic map, but like a step-by-step map of like what it takes to get from the streets into housing. And we would go up to people who were homeless and you'd be like, Hey, is, does this look right? And they'd be like, this part's right. This part's right. But actually my experience was this and that we go, okay. And of course not, you know, no one has the same experience as someone else, but there are systemic trends and we, you know, we, we learned them from the street. Um, the other really valuable thing we did when we were ready to kind of, you know, start getting into the advocacy space was we hired my colleague, Lyndon, who I could speak so highly of. She's amazing. Um, and she was previously herself um, a homeless outreach worker um, here in the city. So she had this, you know, years and years of experience in, in homeless services um, and kind of was taking the approach of, you know, I've been in this world before. So I know what goes wrong from, from the outreach workers perspective. Um, so having her, um, you know, join the team, um, one of the, the, the first thing we did was this project, the, the journey map, which was the final result of this, um, this effort to map out the process, uh, from, from living on the streets to, to getting housing. Um, and it ended up being a dynamic website with, with video interviews, it, a 73 page report when you put it all into a PDF. Um, we really, really, really mapped out this thing. And um, I think part of the reason that we've been able to, you know, 
speak out is because we did we did our homework so thoroughly. And um, another thing that's really valuable is oftentimes when journalists reach out to us and they want to hear something. I mean, I might give them a little information on background, but more often than not, I should say, hey, you should speak to this person who, who went through this. Um, and, you know, so often... Um, there are these articles that come out that we worked really hard on and, and like the background, um, and it ends up being like, you know, we're not really in it, um, but that's fine. It's most important that we get people from, to be, to be able to speak firsthand from their experience. And, um, I think in particular populations on the street have not had that opportunity before. Um, so you know, what little we can do to, to bridge that gap, I think is really important. And I think I totally agree with you. I mean, because I also think it's interesting how, you know, when people do go out and reporters do go out and try to do stories on homelessness and they try to interview people, what they do is they don't have relationship with folks who are actually experiencing homelessness. So they just grab whatever one-off person they can find or, you know, someone they can get on, you know, talk on, on camera or give a quote. Um, and then it ends up almost sort of painting or reinforcing stereotypes that people have about homeless folks, um, in some cases in a negative way, um, because they just pick someone random instead of actually going to someone who's got, you know, not only the lived experience, but also the, the ability to communicate that lived experience. And that's something that I think you guys have done so well. Um, cause I remember that project you did, cause I have, and when I've been training outreach leaders for, for city relief, I've done. Um, I, I sort of have, I sort of drew up my own sort of map that I kind of came up with, but it's like, it's not a 72 page researched and like peer reviewed document, right? Like it's like me with a napkin and a Sharpie, like, this is how you go. This is where you go. This go Bellevue, Affic path, you know, like this is how the outreach works. This is, you know, nine months, all these things that I'm just like scrawling together. So when you guys came up with that, that project, I remember just being blown away. I was like, man, I got to meet these, these folks. Um, cause they're just, it's incredible what you guys have been able to do. Just yeah. Thank you. No, that was, I'm, I'm, you know, I think back to <laughs> how much work went into that project. We had a, a videographer out doing, doing videos. She did a really great job. Um, Brie, we had, uh, Lyndon working on the policy. We had two students from NYU who volunteered to stay for the summer. Um, and they were helping write up some of the, the proposals. We were calling different cities from, across the country and learning about how they did things. So, um, yeah, well, you know, the team really put a lot of work into that and a lot of people who were experiencing homelessness themselves really put a lot of, of time into that too. Yeah. It's, 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 an, it was an incredible, incredible project that you guys put together. So, so let's talk a little bit generally about homelessness and then also, but like specifically even in New York city, right? Like you mentioned, you contacted other cities, uh, obviously homelessness is not unique to New York city. It's a nationwide and a global problem. Um, but tell us a little bit about homelessness in New York city. And like, I know, New York, so New York, I, I, I mean, I know a little bit about this, but I want our listeners to hear it from someone besides me. Um, like New York city is a unique city when it comes to sh- like how it res- responds to homelessness and yeah. it's a right to shelter city. Um, can you explain uh, to, to anyone who's listening who may not understand what a right to shelter city is and, and how that impacts what they see and what they experience when they see someone in the street and, and maybe even why someone may not choose to sleep and take advantage of their right uh, to shelter um, in, in, in our context? Yeah. So New York City is, is a right to shelter city, which means that um, 
in theory, anyone who, who wants to stay in a shelter ha- has the right to do so. There are a lot of um, reasons why one might um, not do that. Um, you know, when when it's a family or, or even an adult couple, the right doesn't extend in the same way. Um, in theory, like every person, you know, in, in an adult couple, which we come across a lot, um, if it's a, a, a person who identifies as a man, a person who identifies as a woman, they'll be separated into a men's shelter and a women's shelter. So um, unless they meet these specific criteria that are very, very difficult to meet. Um, but what we see when people see someone who's who's homeless and, and living on the streets or sleeping on the subways, um, that person has decided, um, understandably so, that they feel safer um, living on the streets or, or living on the subways than they than they would in the shelter. Um, I say understandably so because I've heard stories over and over again about why people make that decision and. Truthfully, if I if I became homeless tomorrow, I think I would I would do the same. Um, they they describe, you know, walking into a, a facility, um, having to share a room with dozens, potentially dozens of people that they don't know, um, which especially during a pandemic is really scary and dangerous. People report having their stuff stolen all the time, not just by other people in the shelter, but by um, you know people who work there as well. Um, and then it's just, you know, I can't think if, if I was homeless uh, and, you know, and potentially working through, you know, some sort of mental health or substance use or whatever it may be, I can't imagine a worse place to be than sleeping in a room with a dozen other people who are going through that exact same thing. I've met people on the streets who say I'm on the streets because I'm trying to stay sober. And because they were, put in a shelter um, surrounded by people going through the same things that they are. Um, that's not in any way a, a healthy uh, environment. It sounds um, extremely stressful, traumatic. Um, so, you know, tr- truthfully, people are walking by people who are homeless um, every single day and they don't know it. These are kids that live in shelters um, single parents that live in shelters, families that live in shelters, um, and you wouldn't know it that they're homeless by by walking by them. In fact, I walk by people who I know to be homeless on the streets and subways, um, but when they're not sitting, you know, with, with a with a cup or with a cardboard cardboard sign, um, they're blending in with everyone else. So the 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 general perception of homelessness is actually. Um, Street homelessness, subway homelessness is, is predominantly what people think of when they think of homelessness. When in reality, in New York City, that's you know, ten percent of the of the whole homeless population, maybe less than that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember meeting a guy in the Bronx who had just been released from Rikers. Um, he did ten years, and he was dressed like you know, he was he looked silly. I mean, really, he just looked silly. He was like this six foot four dude you know, wearing like snakeskin shoes and like a woman's cardigan. And, um, and I, again, not that if he was, if that's his vibe and that's what he wanted to rock, to rock with, then that's great. I have to, no judgment, but he clearly was uncomfortable, right? Like he was just like, he just wasn't that what he was visibly uncomfortable. Um, and he told me that he had been released from Rikers, went right to Bellevue, got placed, uh, in a shelter, um, you know, that, that yeah, it's a right to shelter. He got placed into a shelter because he had nowhere else to stay. And he took off, he, he had used all his commissary money to 
buy timber, a pair of Timberlands, a hoodie, and a pair of jeans. Like from 10 years in jail, he had all his money that he had saved up, like whatever it is, like some freakishly yeah. small amount every day. Uh, and he used all of it to buy Timberlands, jeans, and a hoodie. Uh, and but he took them off and put them in a neat little pile because that's what you're trained to do. In you know when you're in prison, you fold, you know he's, he's he, he still had all the routines of how to like handle his business. And but while he slept, someone stole his stuff. And uh, oh, he said he he woke up and went to the security guard to report the theft. And the security guard was wearing his shoes um, that he that he went to report the theft to. Um, and again, I'm 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 not laughing because it's funny. It's devastating, but it's just like this reality yeah. of. Uh, you know, I just think a lot of people miss out on the on just the stress and the strain and the risk that they're taking by going into a public space where, you know, there is there seems to be and New York Times has done a bunch of stories lately on the corruption in the shelter system, um, you know, the nonprofits that are running sort of scams on the side, like staffing security and lining their own pockets with it. I mean, these are all this is all public information now. Right. And um, and yet it's the people themselves who are in need or desperate for a place to sleep that end up being victimized by this, by this system. So like, you know, you've heard me say this a hundred times, like I'm, I'm convinced people don't choose to sleep in the street. They choose not to sleep in shelters, which is yeah, obviously. And I, I stole that line from you because it really is true. It's not a, it's not, no one's there by choice. Yeah. No one wants to, to be very clear somebody who chooses to avoid the shelter system to, to sleep on the streets or subways, that does not mean that they don't want permanent housing. That does not mean they want their own place that they don't want their own place. That, that just means that they couldn't bear to live in the shelter system, which is a totally different thing. And so often uh, people conflate the two, like this person, people want to live on the street. People want to live on the subways. No, nobody, nobody wants to. So, t- I mean, and tell me about like, because because then what we do is we coin this term, right, in our politics and in our sort of national conversation around homeless. We, we describe them as like service resistant, right? Like we end up placing the blame of this horrible situation onto the people, onto the victims themselves. Um, can you tell me a little bit, talk about the term service resistant and how that sort of conflates what, what our homeless neighbors are experiencing? I hate that term so much. Yeah. Um Basically, what it does is it it shifts the blame from um, the systemic failures towards individuals, um, and it's a uh, you know saying. <laughs> I, I remember interviewing someone, and, and one of the questions we used to ask was, you know, you know, the mayor says people are are service resistant. You know, what would you what would you say in response to the mayor? And they all looked like like shocked. They were like service resistant. Like, no, I like if, if the service you're offering is go to a shelter, then yes, I'm don't want to do that, but I'm not service resistant. Like I want to get off the streets. I want to, I want housing. Like I want to work. Um, and people were just so offended by that term and understandably so because they can feel the, uh, intention of it, which is to blame them. Um, and it's something that, elected officials, uh, bureaucrats have, have used to, um, take the blame off of themselves. Um, you know, we, (laughs) we took, uh, some elected officials out and just, you know, we asked people like, would you want housing? And they were like, of course. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's really, really frustrating and it's kind of a cruel and evil 
thing that happens, but um, we see a lot of it, unfortunately. Um, and I think we've, I think we and, and other advocates and, and homeless people have called out the usage of that term so much, but there's, you know, there's other ways to package that same idea. And that idea is very much ingrained in, in a lot of people who are making these decisions. Um, and it's just devastating because it really does, uh, it really does uh, perpetuate a, just a false narrative. Not even, It's harmful, but it's not true. Yeah. And I, and I think, and, you know, for, for one of the things I've really appreciated about your work and again, just even our friendship, but just the idea of like running against the current of that narrative, right? Like the narrative itself is, is, is part of the problem. And, and now, cause and I know it's, and I know it's, it's, I, I was interviewed recently by somebody and I'm like, well, what's the solution to homelessness? I'm like, well, duh, it's housing, right? Like, 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 like anyone who knows, you know, has worked with homeless folks for any amount of time. The answer to that question is, is like the most obvious question ever. Um, and I also think that there's this, this other piece of it, which is, yes, we absolutely need housing, but in order to get to the housing, there needs to be a large scale shift in the narrative around the people that need the housing, right? Otherwise people will never, there'll be never any enough motivation to like move the chains and, and actually get some progress. Um, and I know you've put a lot of work into this, uh, into the human plan um, in terms of New York's you know, response. And um, tell me, tell us about the human plan. I mean, I'm obviously, I'm biased. I know I'm not even confessing that I'm an objective, you know, <laughs> I'm a huge fan. Um, and uh, yeah, tell us about the human plan. Tell us how, what the kind of the pieces are and, and how we can, you know, keep pushing the ball forward with that. Yeah, the human plan was was a project that we started leading up to the mayoral and city council elections um, that took place in November of 2021. And we were reaching this point where we were kind of like, okay, is the current mayor going to do anything else? <laughs> or are we, uh, you know, wasting our time here? And, you know, the other... The, the, the other advocates really pushed through some some great things at the end of the term, but we decided that our efforts as a small team were best spent preparing for the incoming administration. So we sat down with a group of 11 people who are or were street homeless or subway homeless, and we interviewed each of them and we said, you know, what are the main things you want to see the next administration, administration changed? Um, we took down everyone's ideas. We had uh, group conversations, uh, like sounding room type things. Um, we included outreach workers um, and a secret person from DHS who was very helpful, the Department of Homeless Services. Um, and we basically looked at all the ideas and broke them up into four different categories, four pillars. Um, the four pillars are, the first two are really around kind of the front facing end of it. Like how do you build trust with people? So the first one is about reimagining street homeless outreach. And um, this is one that you and I have spoken about, but I'll, I'll recap our conversation for, for everyone listening. Basically the department of homeless services in line with the service resistant nonsense has this ridiculous notion that if you give people on the streets, basic needs items, that will disincentivize them from going into the shelters because they'll get so comfortable out on the streets. So they don't want us giving out socks like we do on the streets because they think 
that uh, somebody's sitting there <laughs> that like that oh, pair of socks is the reason that pair of socks is the reason someone is out there he's like you know i could go into this apartment but you know what i will miss out on that pair of socks exactly it's just so like <laughs> just shows how out of touch you know the people who are making those decisions are and um you know, I had this experience recently, and then I'll get back to the pillars where I was with, um, I brought a journalist out to meet some people who were being constantly swept. And what, what that means is Department of Sanitation, NYPD, DHS were coming and throwing away all of their stuff. Um, again, that's part of the plan to like make life so uncomfortable that, that people will cave in and go to a shelter. Um, and I, I brought this journalist out and I was like, there's this guy I want you to meet. I met him, you know, a little while ago. Um, and he starts to talk, this guy, and he's like, I trust human. I trust this team. Um, they actually want to help. Um, and this other groups don't, these other outreach teams don't. And at the end of that, I pulled the journalist. I was like, do you want to know how many times I've met that guy? And he said, how many? I said twice. This was the second time. And the reason that he felt he could trust us was because we brought things we showed in, you know, we didn't offered a connect in that we didn't have any conversation about housing shelter anything we just showed in this one moment like hey we can bring this thing and it's so unfortunate you know he was saying those things and on the one hand it's like it's you know it's good to hear that he felt that way about us but devastating to hear that he viewed the the outreach teams as um you know an entity that couldn't help him um he didn't see what they were trying to do to help him because in that first interaction they didn't they weren't able to provide any sort of tangible support um, easy wins as, as, as you put it. Um, so what's also frustrating is I know outreach workers, they want to bring stuff out. They're Absolutely. told they can. Um, <laughs> and it's so frustrating for them too. So, um, you know, that's kind of the, the, the first part is like, let's, let's stop this nonsense of, of treating people, um, you know, trying to make their lives so miserable. Let's treat them, like humans, which is why it's called human plan um, and just meet them where they're at and show we can help in small ways as we work for, for the big ways. And then of course the bigger ways, which is the third and fourth pillar is, is and I won't get into it too much is about housing. And um, like you said, that is the solution. But if we had all the housing that we needed today, we would still have this period where we need to undo so much of the damage that's been done to people's trust by treating them awfully, by yeah. throwing them out of the subways, by throwing away their personal belongings, by refusing to give them the most basic of human needs, by by not, you know, people are, are walking around the city trying to find somewhere to use the bathroom to have a glass of water. Like we're really depriving people of the most basic human needs in an attempt to try to coax them into a shelter that they aren't going to go to. You know, it reminds me, I had a conversation with a guy on last Thursday, I think. Um, and we were trying to help. This is in a different city, actually. This is in Patterson, New Jersey, where we, we operate as well. Um, and they have a, a point in time count that they're doing. I know it's the point in time count, something that we, you know, is a nationwide thing uh, where this, you know, the government tries to get an idea of how many people are experiencing homelessness in every specific area. Um, and the way they do that is they send out volunteers with surveys and, and they try to, you know, count people who are in the street or in the subways or in the shelters. Um, and I, I just happened to be out at our outreach and we had these surveys and I got to tell you, like 
asking people to give me their personal information and having like trying to get information from people without having any incentive, without having anything to give them in return for their information is is madness. It's it's completely useless. It's it, I got I got zero survey. The only survey I got done was because the outreach director who's, you know, who works with me is like, "Hey, I know this guy. Hey, Freddie, come here and answer some questions." Like the only reason like there was nothing yeah. I could have done like to so, get that survey filled out without some kind of incentive or some kind of easy win that like we've talked about. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um one of one of our our employees and we hired three of our our members um a couple months ago and and they've been doing doing outreach work and doing such you know such amazing work and also presenting new ideas and you know one of the new ideas was from my colleague Charmel um and she suggested like hey when when you're talking to this outreach worker like you're giving them all of your information your name your social security number where you slept last night all of this and then they don't give you anything back I'll give you squat um and she's like, there should be a receipt. Like they should, they should give you something that's like, this is what we talked about today. This is my name and contact information, and this is what I'm going to be working on next. Um, simple idea, but I think it's a great I idea. Think, yeah, I think it's, it's a, a great like idea. a really yeah. Um, so good idea, Charmel. We're going to keep working on it. Heck yeah, yeah. And, and, and but again, here and here's the crazy thing, right? Like any company, any any company in America understands that this is just the way it works. Like they don't, they fill out this survey and when, when the opportunity, get the opportunity to be entered for some kind of drawing or fill out the survey and we can like, we'll give you the, you know, some stars at your Starbucks, you know, the next coffee shop. Like it's, it's, it's just, we understand that this is not like how we operate in the human world of like getting information from people. And yet for some reason it's like, oh, well they're homeless. So like, they'll just want to give us all their information with nothing in return, no incentive. And these are people who have been betrayed, abused, traumatized, moved from point of like survival. They're not sleeping well. So like they're already sort of like exhausted just in general. So giving you their, anyway, it just it makes no sense to me. I remember well, I walked away from that going like, how on earth are we supposed to actually get any valuable information from this kind of approach. Um, and it just doesn't, and it goes back to your point about outreach. Like if we're not building trust and, and that's the other thing is like, you know how, you know, the, the, there's all these stats about like, you have to have like 116 encounters or some ridiculous, I'm making that up, right? Like it's a lot of encounters with one person in order to make a single step in progress. And to your point, like it took you two times to meet this person. And all of a sudden you have this established trust and, I've, I've experienced the same thing. Like there are people who would like go to war on my behalf because I gave them a cup of soup, a pair of socks and a listening ear. And they're not going to talk to anybody else except me when it comes down to their situation because of that trust that's been established by that just tangible generosity that I, again, I think so many communities and cities and governments are just totally missing. Um, so anyway. Yeah. And it's just, it's not to say that, you know, again, it's like, if somebody is doesn't want to talk to an outreach team, there's probably a really good reason for that. Um, one of my one of my other colleagues, um, I won't mention his name here just because I, I didn't ask, but he basically had this experience where he was um, when he was homeless, he was contacted by a group of 
he was engaged by a group of outreach workers um, and police officers. And um, the police ended up being awful to him. They took him into a holding cell because he was lying down on the subway. <laughs> they gave him a ticket. And the outreach workers were part of that. And there was this old program that thankfully is done now where the, the outreach workers would go pick him up from the holding cell and then offer to bring him to a shelter. So he had this experience and was like, I'm never talking to this group again. Um, and that's like such an understandable experience because his first contact, he ended up in a holding cell when he was approached with, do you need help? Um, so like, why would he ever interact with them again? That's why I say, you know, there's so much work we have to do to, to undo the damage that was done by, well, first we need to reverse this, this approach, and then we need to work really hard to, to undo all the damage that was done. But it does not mean that people do not want to come off the streets. It does not mean that people do not want housing. It just means that we need to, <laughs> we need to do this better in a better, more humane way. And that, and that, and that, again, to my, to my housed friends who are listening, right. Or watching, like, I think about it this way. Like if I had a friend, even because that happened directly to your colleague, right? Like that experience was a personal one. I'm thinking of even all the people around your colleague who have heard that experience and are now internalizing that risk and that reality through secondhand and thirdhand accounts, which then perpetuates this idea that the city right. is not... And, and which then begs the question, like, I mean, I know for me, if I have a friend who gets food poisoning at a restaurant, right? Like if someone goes to a specific restaurant nearby, they end up getting food poisoning. You think I'm ever going to go back to that restaurant? Like, you know, I'm going to be like, oh, my friend got food poisoning there. Sure, honey, let's go schedule a date and get a reservation. Of course not. Like, that's absurd. I'm going to be like, no way. I'm not touching You're that place. You're being restaurant resistant, Josiah. I'm restaurant resistant. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But it just makes perfect sense, right? Like these folks have these terrible experiences. I remember I had a conversation with um, the former, uh, you know, commissioner of the Human Resources Administration. I think it's Stephen Banks. Um, and uh, he, I remember him asking me, like, what can you guys, like, what can you guys do? Like, what do you, what do you want to talk about? And I was like, well, candidly, you guys have a reputation problem. I was like, you, I was like when the NYPD is approaching our outreach workers, going, hey, we're doing this like uh, expungement or this record expungement program where anyone who comes into the police station is going to be, you know, for petty crimes, we're going to just expunge their records. But we're telling them and they think it's a it's a trap. They think it's a lot. I think it's a joke. So they're actually asking us, like, can you tell your guests and, you know, about this this opportunity? And it's like, well, if you guys are have to come to us to leverage our credibility to help people then why not change the way you're doing things so that you can actually have the reputation of trust that can then actually make make progress? Because um, it's just you're right. I mean, the words the the the, rep, the word is out, right? People in the street they don't need convincing. They they believe the shelters are a mess, um, and they're not going to go in no matter how much you know, depending on the situation. But right, and I think conversely, if you start offering people housing then a lot of people are going to be like, wait a second, this, this is working. Yep. Like wh wh what's this group again? How do I, how do I get in touch with them? Absolutely. Um, so there's, you know, there, there's, there's two sides to that. And I think that the, you know, the flip side is let's use that word of mouth and the fact that this community is so uh, interconnected with each other and, and, you know, work that in, in a positive way, but we need the housing to, to do that first. Absolutely. So, I mean, one question that, you know, I'm trying to ask everybody uh, who I talk to, because I think it's just super important 
is like if if you could convince everyone listening, like if you knew that everyone listening now again maybe it's like three people i don't know how many people are gonna listen to this but if you could convince all three people who are listening to this um of one thing that we get wrong about homelessness, like uh, on a macro level, and you knew that they would walk away convinced um, about what you're saying. Um, what would you say? What would you say that w- if you knew that it would land with the people who are listening and it would change some minds and hearts? You know, we've asked this question to to a lot of people experiencing homelessness, and their answer is is pretty uniform, which is that this can happen to anyone, hmm. and they didn't expect to ever become homeless themselves one thing after another after another happened and and here they are um and that is the message that they wanted to convey so my my first answer is to kind of repeat um what people have shared with me i'll i'll approach this question a a little differently um, and just share share a story so i play soccer quite a lot as you know um and one of the wonderful ways that I play is I play on a, a team of single adults who are homeless themselves or used to be homeless. Um, before the pandemic, we would practice twice a week at a shelter on Wards Island. And I got to know these guys really well. And we started to play in leagues together. And um, so we were playing against like companies <laughs> that, uh, you know, their their HR department put up the funding and got a group together and they would go play and had some good players for sure and our, our team was out there and um we were typically the only team with people of color or a significant number of people of color on the team because again this was a league that everyone else paid for um so we um you know we faced our fair share of uh bias from the referees <laughs> and we were we were punished accordingly for for, for that uh, and there was one game where we were up 3-2 with two minutes left. And the referee called a, a penalty against us, and it was an awful call. Awful, awful call. And our guys lost it. They were devastated. We had fought so hard to keep that keep that lead. Um, and they scored 3-3. And then a minute later, they go back into the box. This guy like trips over himself, and the ref calls another penalty. They scored again, and we lost 4-3. And I have never, I mean, these guys, our team, they were beside themselves. I mean, this meant so much to them. And uh, the coach on our team, this guy, Reed, is amazing. He, you know, slowly we, 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 get, we began to, to lower the, the, the temper a, a little bit and just, like, calm down. And, and, you know, it was awful, and we were all really upset. And I went over to this guy on our team named Lonnie, and I was like, unlucky, man. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll get him next time. That was my way of trying to console him. And his eyes open wide and he looks at me and he goes, unlucky. We weren't unlucky. We were robbed. And I was like, ah. am I, you know, I just hung my head in, in shame. I was like, you know, yeah, we, we were robbed. We weren't, you know, he's a hundred percent right. But the way that I experienced that as a person from, from privilege was like, that was unlucky. Like, you know, it happens. Um, but for him, this was just another instance where life robbed him, and um, he's a, he was he he was an amazing player. And um, a couple months ago, he you know the pandemic, like so many other people, he 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 had housing at one point and, and fell back into homelessness, um, and he was asleep on on the train, and somebody uh, stabbed him and killed him, and. Um, 
you know, we, we, we found out shortly after. And I think a way that I, I could have looked at this before that, that moment where he kind of put me in my place was like, damn, like Lonnie's so unlucky. Like he was on this train. Um, but he wasn't unlucky. He was robbed. And in this case, he was robbed of his life. And there's a reason why, you know, it was him and not me or, or one of the volunteers on the team. Um, it was because he didn't have a home and that's, you know, that makes life more dangerous. Um, so I, I think if I could like try to land one point with people, it's just homelessness is like one injustice after another, after another, after another. And it's easy to view some things in isolation, like, you know, this person can't find a place to use a bathroom and that's homelessness or this person like is waiting in long line for soup and that's homelessness. But like, it's just one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. Um, and this is obviously a, like a devastating story and we, we miss Lonnie a lot. Um, but it's not just this one story, you know, like this is happening, uh, all the time. And, uh, were Lonnie not such an amazing soccer player, I, I wouldn't be here telling this story. Um, but there's a lot of Lonnie's out there who couldn't juggle the ball like he could and dribble past eight people like he could. And that's why I'm not telling their stories right now. But, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Man, that's, it's, it's, wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm so sorry. For, I remember so sorry for your loss. Um, that, you just don't ever get over that kind of, kind of thing. Um, yeah. Look at this, look at this good looking guy. That's our team. Oh my gosh, that's long right there. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I watched. Oh, couple, I, I saw. I saw some of the videos you posted of him playing. Nuts, man. Oh, I mean, it just it just reminds me of of all those like you know brilliant play people I, I I grew up with in Cameroon, like playing like you know these just like these, these gold to, mines. If somebody and, put in a hard tackle on him, his like. His response wasn't like, let's go score. It was like, let me dribble past this person until they give up. And he would juggle the ball over them. He would put it through their legs. Like, I was his, we played center midfield together. So I was standing wide open, like, Lonnie, give me the ball. Lonnie, give me the ball. After, <laughs> after a while, I learned I wasn't getting the ball until this person, like, looked up at Lonnie, like, okay, you win. <laughs> yeah. And then the game could proceed. But he would, oh my goodness, I would not want to foul Lonnie. <laughs> It's not, it does not bode well for you. No, absolutely not. Well, I want to, so I want to, I think I want to end with one more, one more question for you, Josh. And that's like, I think there's a lot of people who, who feel paralyzed by the issue of homelessness because it's so big. And, and, you know, I, I, you've heard me say this, I'm sure a hundred times, I, I, but it just rings true to me in my experience that, that well-intentioned people who don't know what to do end up doing nothing. Um, so what's one thing that a well-intentioned person who maybe doesn't have the experience that you and I have, or uh, maybe are, you know, maybe not, don't have the, the time or um, whatever, like what's one thing that anyone can do to, to try to humanize and, and, and care for their homeless neighbors? Yeah, a really small thing uh, that somebody could do, you know, the, the articles of clothing that people need the most when they're homeless and living on the streets are socks and underwear. 
and people don't really think to be carrying around socks and underwear. Um, we do that. Um, so uh, the easiest way to start a conversation with someone or just to, you know, I have typically will shove a pair of socks in my jacket pocket when I leave. And if I see someone, I'll just say, hey, you need a pair of socks? And typically it's, yes. Like, how'd you know? <laughs> I did. Um, and that, I think, you know, if somebody wanted to do something small and maybe build up to doing something more, that's a really easy way because the response is overwhelmingly really, really positive. Um, and I think, you know, those were how all of our initial conversations started, which is like, do you need a pair of socks? Two out of my, two out of our three employees at Human, the first words I uttered to them were, hey, do you need a pair of socks? Um, and we've obviously built really great relationships since then. So, um, that's what I would say. Anytime anyone reaches out to me and, and asks that question, that's what I say. Socks and underwear. And you can get like really cheap pairs that will, um, you know, do the, do the job, um, at like CVS, Walgreens. New, new, new. socks. Yeah, yeah. Do not give your <laughs> underwear, please. I, I'll never forget when I got someone shipped a box of like, like used, used underwear yeah. to, to, our, to, to hand out. I was like, this is going right from the UPS truck to the dumpster. That's where this is going. Oh my goodness. That's nasty. Yeah. No, please. <laughs> please don't give out used clothes or no used clothes are, are okay. Use, use socks and underwear. Those that's, yeah, that's a different so story. <laughs> yeah. Dude. Thank you so much. Um, just, again, just, I just can't say enough guys. If, if anyone who hasn't checked out human um, I am just the biggest fan. I, Josh has been uh, such a support. You've been such a support to me. Um, such an advocate, even just to me personally, as I've continued to try to learn this space and well, you're the best, of course, just can't thank you enough, man. Really appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. Always <laughs> great to chat with you. All right, man. Take it easy. I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode of the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. Just so you know, I'm releasing a book that is also going to be called Neighbors with No Doors, and I would love for you to check it out. You can find it at neighborswithnodoors.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow along on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to thank my producer, Rex Harson for helping me put this together, as well as the many guests who gave me the gift of their time and their story. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.